To begin our time, I want to just look at a little passage, a verse, a couple of verses in the New Testament, in uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2. It's on page 1174 in the Church Bibles. As you're, as you're looking up that, let me um, just um, introduce the fact that this is going to be a new series um, on the church, a bit more explanation of why. Uh, in a little while. It's unusual in that we aren't going to um, be looking at going sequentially through a book of the Bible or anything like that. We are going to be surveying the Bible um, with two aims in mind. One is to give you a deeper, richer, broader, more profound understanding of why in the Bible, actually, church is really important. Um, And the other is to give you a deeper, richer, more profound understanding of how the whole message of the Bible fits together. And I know that is ambitious. Um, uh, So I have um, provided for this week, and I think it will be for every week, a handout, because um, I will just glance at at things that you may want to reflect on more deeply, either alone or in your home groups uh, later. I am going to stretch you, and I hope it's not going to be just mentally stretching you. I hope, actually, your heart will be stretched. That's my profound hope, that actually, somewhere deep in your soul, you will see more clearly what God's calling on your life is, and will feel more deeply motivated to live up to what God's called us to. Now that little verse in Ephesians chapter 2. Or uh, verse 14, a couple of verses. He himself, that's Jesus, is our peace. He has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh, flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. I want to begin, um, actually, by reading uh, to you sections from uh, a couple of books. I've got them uh, uh, over there, in fact, but I'll, I'll read them from here. First is an excellent little book, Um, Jim Samra's book, The Gift of Church. He describes, for instance, at the beginning, an email from a woman. She'd visited every church within a 50-mile radius of her home and unable to find one which was suitable, she wrote, he says to me, because she was listening to podcasts of my sermons. And in her email, she asked, is listening to sermons at home alone enough or do I still need to go to church? Or he describes a couple with three young children. And he says, all this activity doesn't leave much time or energy to be involved in a local church. A weekly Bible study in their home is all they and their children need. Are they right? Or a successful businessman? He is sure that if he ran his business the way most churches are run, he would be bankrupt within a few weeks. Consequently, he has little time or respect for the church. He and some like-minded businessmen get together for accountability and encouragement. And this group, he says, is his church. 
Is there any reason for him to become involved in a local church, says Jim Samra. And then the other quote I've put on your notes for you from a much more demanding book that I wouldn't recommend to many of you to read, though it is useful, After Our Likeness by Miroslav Volf. Volf grew up as the son of a pastor in communist Yugoslavia under Tito. He writes, it would not be quite accurate to say that my parents worked for the church. They lived for that small community of believers entrusted to their care. Our home was in the church and the church had insinuated itself into our home. We were part of it because it became part of us. What remains indelibly inscribed, not so much in my memory as in my very soul, is the deep and unwavering commitment, love I think is the right word, that my parents had for that community. Now as I look back from a distance, I see what I failed to recognise clearly at the time, but what nevertheless shaped me profoundly. Their commitments mirrored the commitment of Christ, who loved the church and gave himself up for her. For the last uh, nine months um, in elders' meetings, a recurring theme has been the biblical teaching about the church as we've wrestled with various issues, considered possible future church plants, um, how to, how to um, manage messy church that you were, talking, you were hearing about, what home groups are for, how to deal with pastoral issues, and on and on. Again and again, what, what, what is the church all about comes up in our conversation. And one of the things that we kept coming back to was a conviction that in our culture, and amongst us actually, here in particular, our understanding of the biblical vision of the church is not universal, uniformly strong. Um, the people that Jim Samra describes are utterly familiar to most of us. And what Miroslav Wolf describes as church is as foreign to us as a bird of paradise in the Arctic. So we decided that I, I should teach a series on the church, as I've already said. And um, we could have gone through all the New Testament passages on the church and built up a picture of what it should be like. But as I meditated on it, I became convinced that, that, that there is... There is something more fundamental that I need to show you and that's what I want to try and do over the next uh, few weeks. I, I want to try to, to show you that local churches like this one are vital, pivotal. They are an, a, a central part, the central part at this moment in history in God's plan for his whole creation. They are vital and central in his plan for the world, but a local church is vital and central in his plan for you, too, as an individual. If you wanted one statement from Jesus about why he died on the cross, you couldn't do much better than his statement, I will build my church So we're going to try to do that uh, over the next few weeks. 
we're going to try to look at what, what, what I've called the communal vision of the Bible. And this week will just be an introduction um, uh, uh, as we begin to look at it. We need this week, for instance, sorry, there's Wolf's book, um, to uh, think just for a little bit about some of the challenges that there are to the Christian church in the 20, 21st century. And I could have named lots. I'm not going to talk about the overrising opposition, for instance, that there clearly is to the church at the moment in our culture. I, I, I want to talk about some other issues. One of the things that really challenges local churches is the incredible mobility that there is in our culture. We move around a great deal. Do you know the median time that people have spent in this church is four years? And the average time that a new person coming to the church will stay, it has been for the last 14 or so years that I've been here, the average time that they will stay is three years. That is 50% of people who walk through the door and start to join the church actually will be gone inside three years. Um, Nationally, the proportion of people who've been in their home for less than a year is 10%. That's relatively high. One in 10 has been living there only for less than a year. But, But... To be honest, amongst us, I think it's closer to 20%. And in some parts of inner East Oxford, I reckon it gets to 50% of people have only been in there where they're living for a year or less. So, people develop short-term superficial relationships. People's best friends are not locally. They're somewhere else, understandably. And their families certainly are. So, deep commitment to others in that kind of environment is is really difficult. I'm actually not sure that that's that's the biggest issue. Partly because the early church grew and flourished in an environment which saw enormous geographical uh, mobility in in the first century something that hadn't been seen before and wasn't seen since again until the 20th century. So churches can flourish in that environment. I think a more significant factor that that mitigates against strong local churches in in our culture is the breakdown of families and and the breakdown of wider community, which, which goes beyond actually just the geographical mobility of people. In the family, for instance, soon the majority of children leaving school will not be living with both of their biological parents. At the moment, it's pushing 40%, but it's rising. Um, That has an emotional effect on people that overflows into lots and lots of different relationships and simply makes sustaining long-term, deep, committed relationships more difficult. And um, alongside... Um, family issues, there is um, a general loss of social cohesion in in local communities. And David Cameron is absolutely right that the the ghettoising of different cultures has been very bad for us 
and uh, is evident in East Oxford amongst us. What's less clear is whether David Cameron can do anything about it. So we get into the habit of living in the midst of a sea of other cultures, but actually only relating to a little subset that we happen to uh, consider to be friends or people like me. And an average person transfers that across into church. It's a dangerous um, habit. I I, I go to uh, Tesco's on the Cowley Road and I'm just bowled over by the variety of people that there are there. And I think to myself quite often, How many of these people here wandering up and down the aisles could we as a church integrate successfully into our life together if they became Christians? Now, it is the essence of church, as I'm going to to try and show you over the next few weeks, it is the essence of church is that it brings together different cultures that would not naturally relate. But we are not good at that. And actually the culture stretches that, um, that, that uh, ability in the church more and more and more because, to be honest, say in an average um, community in the past, you wouldn't have had to cross that many barriers in order to be a reasonably comprehensive kind of community. Now you do. Really hard then not to withdraw back into that ghetto. But I think there's something even more significant. What many people call a postmodern ethos. Let me explain what I'm talking about. We, we, we live in a, in, a, in a moment when culture has shifted and is shifting dramatically and our attitude to relationships is one of the key things that is moving. Relationships today are all about surface. The new media have contributed to that. I love Facebook, but um, a Facebook relationship is a very, very different thing from the real thing, isn't it? You know, we see only what the other person wants us to see. They can determine that um, if they've got the, uh, the skills to go into the, the guts of Facebook uh, with great precision these days. Um, we relate to that person in pictures and sound bites and uh, we can unfriend them at the click of a button, can't we? Utterly unreal in one one sense. And uh, alongside that, we have trained ourselves as human beings to become much more consumers than we are people. We are consumers of things and experiences and so on. Let let, let me explain by giving you an example. Um, Think of the humble pub for instance. Um, once it was enough for a pub to be the local. People went along to it because a major part of their agenda was to relate to other local 
people. But actually, if you go to Maudlin Road, where the church building is, it is equidistant between um, two thriving pubs, one of which is a gastro pub and uh, has recently got a, a Bib Gourmand Award from the, for, for the Michelin Guide 2011, and the other uh, of which has very, very successfully created a clever Oxford brand, the Rusty Bicycle. It's a faux pub, uh, faux local, a pseudo local. That came home to me when I was walking along Maudlin Road and someone came up to me and said, uh, um, is this Maudlin Road? And I said, yes. And they said, could you show me where, tell me where the rusty bicycle is? And I showed them that. Um, it feels like a local in lots of ways. But it's branded. That's what makes it successful. People are consumers. We go a long way to find a pub that feels like a local. There is irony. So we live actually in a, in a world, and we could have gone on with example after example after example, a world that actually is mitigates against the formation of deep relationships and deep communities. And people feel that as a deep loss. But they don't have the capacity to do anything about it. The Bible says that actually that loss is very, very real. Because it says, if you're not in deep relationship with other people across barriers, you are living a subhuman life. That's what I want to try and show you this morning. It's actually at the heart of what it means to be human beings that we need community. Not surface communities, not just my friends that I happen to like, but a truly diverse community. And I want to do that by taking you to Genesis chapter 1. So uh, open it with me. At Genesis 1, verses uh, uh, 26 and 27. Because there, the Bible gives a first hint that relationships image God. God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the livestock, over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is actually an amazing couple of verses in Genesis chapter, uh, chapter 1. I want to show you why. The first thing in verse 26 that is very significant is God says, Let us make man in our own image. Are there lots of gods? Well, Genesis, the Bible and Genesis 1 in particular is absolutely emphatic. There are not lots of gods. There is one God who creates everything simply at his word. Some Jewish scholars who wrestled over this suggested that he's addressing the angels. 
But even that doesn't work, I don't think, because the Bible, again, is emphatic that angels are not involved in creation. They simply watch in awe. Not surprisingly, actually, since the earliest days of the church, Christians have wondered whether this is a first hint of the Trinity, Father, Son and Spirit, cooperating in the work of creation. And though a full doctrine of of Trinity, uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, is absolutely a long way from this text, it is significant, I think, that God says, let us make man. It's probably best to understand it as deliberative. That is, that he is, 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 he is deliberating, he is talking to himself. But even that, you see, shows that somehow within the Godhead, there is a distinction. There is a sense of passing an idea from one to another. There is something there that takes us beyond a simple picture of God spoke and it was so to a God who somehow is relating within himself. The New Testament takes that, what is here only a kernel of an idea, and shows us that that is fully expressed in God the Father, who sent God the Son, Jesus Christ, and sent God the Spirit to be amongst his people. So if that is not... um, set out here. Nevertheless, that somehow that relational dimension to God is. And then there's a second thing that we really need, we, we need to notice in these, in these two verses. It's found in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. There is, in the human condition, what biologists call sexual dimorphism, but it's far more profound than simply the biological differences between men and women. Now, somehow, until God had created a man and a woman, two human beings who were somehow complementary and different from each other, and called them into relationship, somehow he hadn't completed that process of making human beings in his image. And we can see, can't we, why, if we've taken seriously that plural, let us make. God is, in his essence, a relational being. And it is one aspect of the essence of what it means to be, to have the dignity of being called in the image of God that we too are relation, relational beings. 
And that gets worked out in the Bible in terms of marriage. For instance, uh, just across the way in Genesis 2.24, we see marriage as being described as the two becoming one. So, 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 So marriage, says the Bible, images that in its ideal. Um, but the New Testament does something very interesting with that, with this language and this idea. The New Testament relativizes marriage. The New Testament says, yeah, mar- marriage, is, marriage is a great um, place where you see a relationship being worked out and human beings there, therefore coming to image God as they relate together. Marriage is, mar- marriage is great, but there's somewhere else where it happens too. It's in the church. For a Christian, you see, your marital statement, uh, a status is not the most fundamental thing about you. Your relationship to God's church is. And that's what, um, in that passage in Ephesians, which you might want to turn up again, um, uh, Paul is alluding to. He works it out in lots of other places, but um, here it's quite interesting language. Um, did, you know, did you notice that? He's, he's destroyed the dividing wall of hostility in verse 4 between, he uses two example groups, Jews and Gentiles, but he's just using it as an example. The dividing wall of hostility between people who are, are naturally not um, uh, naturally at odds with each other by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. And then here it is. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two. So what in Genesis 2 was, was, was a human uh, married couple coming together and becoming one is now in the New Testament seen in God's church, creating a corporate person, the body of Christ. We are, made, we are brought together as one in Christ, says, says the Apostle Paul. We discover the fullness of God's purpose for us as we live together as a local church. That's what I I want you to see this morning. That's the the central thing that I want you to understand. Um, In pursuing diverse relationships amongst God's people, learning to live and work together, learning to love across barriers, it's in that that we become fully human. If you are not committed to relationships across the full range of the people who are in Christ together, you are not living up to God's calling for you, you are not imaging God, you are living a sub-Christian, sub-human life, says the Bible. And in a sense, and here's where I can only very, very briefly just sketch it out and we'll look at it more over over the coming weeks. In, in, In a sense, the whole of the rest of the story of the Bible is actually a story of 
true and false ways of forming communities. Or, uh, um, as uh, I've put it, a tale of two cities. So here's how the story goes. Let me just sketch it, sketch it for you very, very briefly and you might want to look at it more in your, your home group before we come back to this foundational thing. The story goes that when Adam and Eve sinned, they became alienated from one another. They lost that relationship with, an, with one another. They donned clothes as a symbol of their fear of one another and their anxiety in one another's presence. They started blaming one another and that they were at odds. In their children, it got worse. Uh, Cain, one of their sons, murdered Abel, the other son. And uh, Cain experiences, as a result of that, that uh, a judgment which he finds absolutely terrifying. It's in Genesis 4, verse 14. He says, I will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. What began in their parents has come to, 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 to sort of hor- extended horribly for Cain. He is now a lonely person amidst hostile people. And he responds to this social alienation in a very significant way. It's in verse 17 of, chapter, of Genesis 4. Cain, we learn, was then building a city. And he named it after his son, Enoch. He builds a city of man. And right there you can see the incipient pride and self-aggrandizement associated with forming this false city of man. He names it after his son, Enoch. And that story grows and develops throughout Scripture. So in Genesis chapter 11, you, you find them saying, uh, saying let, us, let us gather together around a great Tower of Babel in order to make a name for ourselves. Very interestingly, it uses the phrase, let us, let us, just like God said, let us make man in our own image. Well, let us make a community in our own image and God scatters it. And then, uh, and then Babel actually becomes Babylon historically. Babylon becomes, becomes proverbial for, for, um, uh, not only that culture, but cultures in general, which are characterised by, by violence, by pride, by excessive luxury, and by the oppression of God's people. In the New Testament, the, 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 the great culture of Rome gets called Babylon for precisely that reason, because it, is in, it has inherited that mantle. And in Revelation, at the end of the, of the Bible, in the end, we, we get this, 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 this gory and gruesome description of the destruction of Babylon, symbolically the city of man, the community that man has built up. And when you look at it, which you might want to do in your house groups, you will see there is, it is vividly described as proud, as violent, as excessively, as obsessed with wealth. How familiar is that? With our, with our modern critique of, of, of our own Western culture, which is quietly very violent suppressing anything that is uh, that is against our, our our interests as a nation and um 
yet quietly um, tolerating some despots in North Africa, as has been pointed out recently. Or, or an economy that, it, that, it, that is built simply on economic growth uh, uh, over years and years and years, even though no one can see how that can, that, uh, can avoid destroying the environment. And on it goes. Well, that is portrayed, portrayed in, in technicolour in the book of Revelation. And there's, there's a sort of title that hangs around the neck of this city of man, this Babylon that, is, that has been destroyed. It is called a prostitute. Notice the, notice the language. A distortion of a proper relationship. In some senses, very attractive with its colour and its gaudiness and so on. But ultimately destructive. Fallen, fallen is Babylon, the great prostitute, says Revelation. Okay? That is one story that runs through scripture that is, that is, that is uh, going on amongst us today. And then says, uh, then says the Bible there is another story running through scripture all the time. There is the purpose of God to form a proper community of his people, a city of God. It begins with Abraham, extends to the nation of Israel and particularly the city of Jerusalem. Israel and the city of Jerusalem actually fails and gets labelled with the same labels that apply to Babylon. But God says there's going to be a new city, a renewed city. There's a quote in your notes from Isaiah 62, which, uh, uh, which, which, which will capture that for you if, you if you want to look at it. And what appears is not a new nation of Israel, not a new city of Jerusalem. What appears in the New Testament is local churches. They are the city of God. And they await the final moment described in Revelation when finally Jesus returns and a new Jerusalem is created with people from every tribe and nation united together and serving God. Okay, that's, that's the story of the Bible and we're going to be tracing it in more, uh, in more detail. The whole purpose of God is summed up by saying he is determined to create communities. Because as a community of God grows up, Human beings become whole. Human beings become human because they become persons. So you see, in just a moment, we'll stop, we'll go and drink some coffee. And I guess you'll talk to someone. Who you choose to talk to is really deeply significant. Will it go through your mind? Ah, I like him or her. Or will it go through your mind? 
I need to relate to that other person who is in Christ. What decision you make then and over the rest of your life will determine whether God says of you this is a person truly who images me.